Today's passage is from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right. How is everybody? We're good? All right. Um, So last week, what happened was I'm preaching a sermon on suffering, and we're going through the passage, and I run out of time, and I still have half a sermon left. And so I paused that, and I saved it all for this week. And so we're going to, this week, we're going to finish sort of um, the extra thoughts that I had. I, I just... I felt like we should land the plane where we did last week. It was getting a little heavy. I know, I felt it. I apologize. All the feels. Hashtag all the feels, right? Um, and uh, so we put the plane down. We're taking off again. And we're going to... I'm gonna, so I'm basically going to do a little bit of a recap. And then I'm going to join it with today's stuff. And we're going to pretend this one-week break we took just didn't happen. And we're going to keep rolling. Um, and so I'll open us up in a word of prayer. And uh, we'll ask God for some knowledge and wisdom, and to just give us peace for a few minutes, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you. We come to you, and we are, are, we are thankful. We have thankful hearts and, and, and joyous spirits, and we ask that you would um, fill us with what we need so that we can pour ourselves out for the world around us. I ask that um, you would bring some things to mind that, that we would rather not maybe think about, um, and that we can look at them in the light of you and who you are. I ask that you would remind us of some things in our lives that should not be and give us the tools to remove them. Um, above all, I ask that you would help us to be present, to be here, not uh, minds wandering elsewhere, that we would be awake and aware that you are here in the midst of us and that um, all of this has meaning and purpose and that we have a part to play in all of it. And... Uh, the distractions of, a, of the week, the things that have kept us awake, that wake us up in the middle of the night and, and just won't let us go, I ask that you would remove them for a little while here so that we can be just people that are, are centered on you so that this can become more of a regular practice and that, and that more and more of our days will be times where we are, like, like this morning, 100% focused on you and what you want of us and what you want us to do and, and responding with praise. And that our lives would just turn into this. Thank you for guiding us, for leading us, for pulling us forward. We love you. In your name, amen. So a little recap. Last week we, we opened up sort of a, a talk about suffering. And we talked about how your suffering affects those around you. 
and how the suffering of others affects you when you are a witness to suffering, what it does to you. We talked about a very special quote here from Winston Churchill, very short, death is the tuning fork of life. Um, in the moments, in the days, in the weeks, in the months, maybe after we lose somebody that is special to us, um, we are actually thinking clearly. We are convinced in those times that the most important thing is family and God and spirituality and, our, our, and human beings. Um, and as we get farther and farther away from tragedy, these things tend to fade and we fall back into a state of normalcy. And so this is what death does. This is one of the roles that it plays in our life. It retunes us and allows us to once again be centered on what, what we should be focused on. Then we talked about um, trials, the words that the scriptures use for um, trials and suffering. And um, the words are interesting because they all sort of signify um, pain that must be gone through so that life can come. There's the word pruning in the scriptures, which is take a rose bush that's Kind of, it's kind of beautiful, and you kind of chop it all up. It looks like you're killing it, but you're actually making it healthy. And then you take metal, like a, a big chunk of silver, and you look at it, and it's called silver, and there's impurities in it, and you don't know how many are there until you put it through the fire, and then it melts, and the impurities come to the surface. And you say, that's, that's how impure this was. I had no idea. And you scrape it off. And so the idea is um, that when we go through trials... When things get difficult, when we are put over the fire, our impurities come to the surface. And we can see by our reactions, by our mindset in our suffering, we can see the parts of us that are not centered on Christ. And we can see maybe some malice or some, some deceit or some racism or some uh, way of looking at the world that was not right. And when these things pop up, we see them, we look at them, and we scrape them off, repent, and we change and move forward. And the goal is that the metal will become more and more pure, that our lives will become more and more pure so that people can see the reflection of God upon us. Um, and so this week, I'm going to skip verse 14. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, we're going to go right to verse 15 and sort of get this out of the way. Um, it says, uh, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Um, so he lists a few things that, that, that bring suffering into your life, certainly Murdering somebody will bring suffering into your life. Um, certainly, stealing a bunch of stuff from people will bring some suffering into your life. You're probably going to get beat up. Um, uh, being a general evildoer, just, you know, just doing all this stuff. There's, there's a really interesting word here for meddler. It's, it's the word allotriepiscopos. Everyone say, allotriepiscopos. Um it means overlooker of other people's matters, a busybody. This is somebody who you might say is all up in your business. Um, really annoying. They're just trying to control everything. That's a good way to bring suffering into your life as well. Um, so we all know people who have suffering going on in their life that they have obviously brought upon themselves. Um, we all know people who just make Bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And then one day they wake up and they, they've just lost everything. And they are just in the worst possible place, socially, spiritually, financially, all of it. And then they cry out, injustice, I am not being treated the way I should be. And nobody is, is you know, just all the ways they should be treating me as they are so-called Christians and they're just not treating me a certain way. Um... Peter's kind of saying, 
yeah, this is what happens. There is, it is possible to bring suffering upon yourself. Um, I would put it this way. Not all suffering is caused by sin. Not all suffering is caused by sin. But sin always leads to suffering. There are times when you are suffering and there's no fault of your own. Um, I grew up in, like a, 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 in Los Angeles at a, at a very sort of conservative Baptist church. And once in a while I would get this, I would hear this kind of um, hint of what people were saying. Is that, that, that when you are suffering, that there's some sin in your life. And they would try to quote some scriptures to make this appropriate. And it's not. It's not true. It's just not true at all. Um, there are all kinds of things that you cannot control that are out of your ability to control because there's other sin in the world and there's pain in the world. There's death in this world and it will affect you and it will be there. And, and scriptures don't tell us why your suffering occurs. It tells us, um, it gives us a lot of tools though to walk through it. Um, sometimes uh, I, you know, if you're prone to worry, um, I like to tell my, my children or people in my family sometimes that, that like to worry, I, I like to just kind of remind them, look, 90% of the things that you worry about um, won't happen. And the other 10%, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, there's not, honestly, um, there is no way to rid pain and suffering from this world. That's not our job. That's God's job. And he tells us he will. Um, but rest assured, when you are living a way that you should not be, when you are engaging in things that are not the will of God for your life at all, um, you absolutely will bring suffering into this world. Sin brings suffering. Either your suffering or the suffering of those you love. And there are repercussions of it. And so Peter says, um, inspect your life. Make sure you're not bringing this upon yourself. Okay. Um, so let's go back to verse 14 now and go from here. Uh, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So there's a really interesting phrase here that if you think about it, hopefully when you're reading the scriptures, you're like paying attention and trying to picture everything that's being said. Um, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a really interesting phrase. Um, and it's hard to understand what it means, but there's this um, extra biblical idea. Extra biblical means it's not in the Bible, but it is an idea that comes from the Bible that, that the ancient um, Jewish rabbis used to write about, um, and used, they used to call it the Shekinah glory, okay? Now, um, this basically, the Shekinah glory, when they spoke about this, this was the physical representation of Yahweh, of God in their midst, and he would appear in different forms. Um, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about when he appeared, when God appeared in the form of Jesus, we call it the incarnation. Um, it's, it's, the incarnation basically means with flesh, with meat. When you get uh, chili con carne, that's chili with meat. Incarnation, it's God in, in meat, in the flesh. And I, I think it's hilarious that we would call it that. Um, but it's God in the flesh, and he was walking around with us. It's a physical representation of God. Um, and so this is another representation of God. In the, in the, a lot of times it appears um, in the Old Testament, um, it is God would appear not in the flesh, but in the form of... Um, sort of luminous, like light, sometimes fire, sometimes cloud, it, but it was all kind of similar. It was just this terrifying kind of thing. Um, when the Israelites were in the desert and God is leading them, he's leading them by pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Um, and it's a time of great trial and confusion. And he's leading them like this. Um, there's a time where Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. Um, the people kind of say, look, we're terrified of God. Don't let God appear to us. 
You go meet him. We are terrified. Because when this would happen, it was this terrifying thing. So Moses met with God on top of the mountain, and it says it was, there was cloud and lightning and fire. Um, when the tabernacle was completed, it says that the, the presence of God, what the rabbis would call the Shekinah glory, filled the temple with smoke. And, and the, the priests just fled because it's, it's terrifying. Um, and so you see this a lot through scriptures. So whenever you see that physical representation, they would call it the Shekinah appeared to God, of God. Um, and, and so this is the same thing that, that appeared to Paul in the New Testament, um, knocked him on the ground and claimed him as one of God's. It's the same thing that's in the book of Acts. You read this. Um, there's a man named Stephen who's um, part of the early church, and he's being stoned. And while he's being stoned, he's preaching the gospel, telling them about Jesus and the hope that he offers and the resurrection and that God can fix this world and only he can fix the, the problems and the struggles that we're in. Listen to his teachings. And, and while he's teaching the ways of Jesus, they pick up stones and they're pelting him with stones and they eventually kill him. But while he's dying, he's, uh, th- it says this, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, it glowed. Um, there's parts uh, in scripture where they, they, and in the Talmud, they would write about how when the priests would come out of the Holy of Holies and they would step out onto sort of the, the porch, if you will, of the tabernacle, and they would lead the people in song, their face would be glowing and their eyes would be closed because their face would be glowing. Um, people actually say to this day, this is why we close our eyes when we pray, that it comes from all the way back there. Um, <clears throat> and so this is an interesting way of talking that Peter is using. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what he's saying is, remember, the audience that he's writing to, I have to remind you every single time, this is really important to understand. This was written at a time when these Christians were about to be rounded up and killed. Rounded up and taken to the arena to be fed to wild dogs or lions. Some of them were rolled in in pitch and lit on fire and put on stakes while they were alive to light Nero's garden parties. Um, Some of them were were crucified just all along the road for miles. Christians, they would go door to door. Are you a Christian? Yes, come with me. Round them up and kill them. And so this book was written knowing this was coming. He even starts off this passage, um, don't be surprised when the suffering comes upon you, as if something strange were happening. You know exactly what's going to happen. Which, as I said last week, makes this book the ultimate guide to suffering. Because this book was written by sufferers. Most of the scriptures were written by people that were going through intense suffering. And so of all the books we like to read while we're going through suffering, um, why would we not pick up this one first? Written by people in suffering who had this joyous outlook on it. And so what Peter's saying here is, when you are going through suffering, the same God who appeared to Moses on the mountain when Moses didn't know what to do or where to take the people or, or where this was heading, the same God that, that led the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years, the same God um, that filled the temple when, when it was ready, when, when we created a space for him, that he was there, the same God that appeared on the face of of Stephen, when he was being stoned for doing nothing wrong. That same God, when you suffer, and you're not suffering because of your sin, and you're just suffering, and you're trying to understand God, and you're trying to follow God through it, he will shine upon you. He will be with you. He will join you. You will be in the long line of people who, when you suffer, God is there with you. Now, 
Um, this was a very important thing for the early church to remember. Um, so it's not only the book of Peter that was written going into intense suffering. Um, probably the same year that this book, Peter, uh, First Peter, was being written, there was a book called Mark that was being written. It was the first of the Gospels. All of the other Gospels kind of um, borrowed a lot of the pieces that Mark wrote. Uh, but it was written between like 60 and 64 um, to an audience who, like I just said, was going into suffering and they knew it was coming. So the early Christians used to read the book of Mark with the full understanding of, of the fact that Mark wrote a lot of things in there, a lot of stories about Jesus in there purposely to help them understand how to walk through suffering. Uh, there is one passage in particular in, in uh, Mark chapter 4 where it describes them on the Sea of Galilee and the waves are crashing over the top of them and they are terrified. And Jesus was, was there. He tells, them, he tells them, let's get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side and we're going to preach. Um, and so they get in the boat and there's apparently a giant pillow in the front and Jesus lays down on the pillow and goes to sleep and points them towards a storm. And they sail right into that storm. And they are terrified and Jesus is just sleeping. Um, and they're crying out, Jesus, wake up. Do you not care that we're all just the waves? Everything is going to destroy us. We are surrounded by danger, and we are terrified, and this is the end. And Jesus kind of wakes up, and he's actually a little agitated. I am too when I get woken up. But he's agitated not that he got woken up. He's agitated that they still don't trust him. They still don't get it. And he wakes up, and he looks at them, and he's like, do you still not have faith? And he calms the ocean. He led them into that. And then he slept during it as if to show them, look, you can have peace. I'm here with you, and I'm not terrified. I know where this is heading. Um, two passages later, uh, I mean, sorry, two, uh, two chapters later, this happens again. They get in a boat, and they're out. Jesus is on the shore. And uh, there's so many hilarious things in these stories. That they're, they're out there, and the waves come again, and they're terrified. And it says, and Jesus came walking on the water, And it literally says, he was going to pass on by. But they saw him, and he turned and went to see them. Like, just taking a walk, what? And they saw him, and they actually said, he's a ghost. They thought it was a ghost, walking on the water, which there's there's a lot of sort of Jewish symbolism there, because um, in those days, they, the Jewish people were not seafarers. They always were inland people. Um, They were terrified. They thought, they used to call the ocean the abyss. And they thought it was where the demons and, and Satan lived. And, and so they were terrified of the water. And so that's why they see Jesus. They're like, oh, a ghost. Oh, it's not. It's Jesus. Over here. And he turns and he comes. Um, and they see him. And this thing that's overtaking them, the abyss, the evil, all around them, they're just terrified of what is coming upon them. And then here comes Jesus walking along the top of it. And they see him. And Peter, the author of this book about suffering, gets out of the boat. And walk towards, walks towards Jesus. And as long as he's keeping his focus on Jesus, he knows that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows where this is all headed, and he's in control. And then he takes his eyes off, and he starts looking at the problems, and they become very terrifying again, and he starts to sink. And Jesus says, hey, hey, right here. You look at me. I am here to help you walk over the top of all of this that you think is going to destroy you. And so the early Christians would read the letter of Mark about what the story of Jesus is. And in this story, they would see how to walk through their own suffering. And each of the Gospels was sort of written in a way um, to help them, okay, now that we're through suffering, now that we're at the other side, sort of what's our mission. And, and they would read the Gospels this way. Um, so as Christians, we have this way to 
metabolize our experience. The, the scriptures are filled with ways, things that we can concentrate on and focus on um, to help us walk through very difficult times in life. Um, there is a, uh, in, March, in March 2014, there's the issue of, um, of The New Yorker. There's an article about a Los Angeles-based photographer named Rose Lynn Fisher. She decided to, she was a photographer, she decided to use a, a microscope to photograph, <clears throat> maybe you read this, to photograph um, tears of different emotions. So she got hundreds of people and gathered their tears, I don't know how you do this, but whatever, um, through different kinds of emotions. And uh, she would photograph these tears and then she would um, zoom in and, and get a microscopic image of the sort of texture and the makeup of these tears and the photographs are fascinating because each one has a completely different chemical makeup. Whatever makes you cry, whatever that emotion is, it releases something a little different. And when you look at these things, it's fascinating. Like for instance, here's onions. When, you, when you're in the kitchen and you're chopping onions, you're just like, oh, so I love chopping onions. And try catch those, take a picture of them. There it is. It's, it looks like how it feels. Um, <laughs> and there is, so there's this... Um, where a very well-known psychologist named, named Henry Cloud, and, he, and he, he writes about, about this, and he says that um, each type of crying and expelling tears and grief and emotion accomplishes a different kind of work, and each are uniquely important. So each of them is, is doing its own work and carrying the message of what you have been and are going through, um, and you need to release these things to move forward. Let's, I want to look at some of these. Um, here is grief. Uh, grief, this is those who have suffered so maybe they've, they've lost someone that they love or they, it's something that, that's, it's someone that was so important to them that they poured into. And so you will find these tears on the face of people who have no idea what to do with the experience that they have. It's just, they've been handed something they have no idea what to do with and there's no context for, so what do I do with this? This person who has always been here is gone. I had plans. I had life plans and they're gone. And I have no idea. Part of grief is the pain of, of the change, of, of a loss. It's not just a loss of a person. It's a loss of a future, of everything that you had in your brain. For the rest of your life, they will not be there. That's grief. Um, here's bondage. I love how these things kind of actually look like what they are. Kind of tied down, held back. Um, bondage, it's... Uh, People yearning for liberation, for freedom. The kind uh, of tears you'll see on the face of someone who is falsely imprisoned or addicted or uh, in an abusive relationship that they just cannot break free of for whatever reason. Maybe because there's children, because there's, they, they cannot make a living any other way. They don't know what to do and they just want to be free and they can't. And the tears for liberation come out. Um, these are the tears of exhaustion. It's the people who have been striving and striving and striving and striving and they're just, it's not, there's no rest and it's not changing. It's not getting any better. It's the mother with, with children who is just, she's exhausted and she just wants her time. And there's, this isn't going to end for 18 years and you're just tired. And it's, the person trying to provide for their family and they're working and they're working and they just can't get ahead. It just won't take off. It, it's just not happening. And no matter how hard you work, it's, you're not making any progress and, and you feel like there's no rest coming. 
They're just exhausted. Um, these are tears of change. I love it. There's a, there's a, a pattern, and then just right in the middle, just something you don't know how to make sense of it. Uh, that's what change is. You've just been suddenly given something. You know, I don't know what to do with this. It's um, the feeling that I hope what I'm receiving is better than what I had, but I don't know, and I'm terrified because I was comfortable. It's the thought that um, the best, maybe the best times are behind you, and from here out, it's just, it's different. It's not as good. It's not, it's not the same. It's what follows grief. It's one of the things that makes grief so difficult. Now, these are all, all of these types of tears and, and outpouring are very important because they all um, accomplish something different. Um, and to me, I think the most important aspect of all of this is that they happen in an invisible place. I am a crier at funerals. I have a really hard time. And because I, I don't typically have a lot of, a lot of empathy um, until I get in a situation where I'm witnessing somebody who's lost somebody. Um, and then it all just kind of kicks in. I'm like, what is this? What is all these feelings? Um, and I'm a crier, and, and I wish I wasn't because it's not a good thing for the person that's been asked to like lead the funeral to just not be able to handle it. Um, and so it's very, very difficult. But I, th- I think one of the biggest problems is that um, tears come from your eyes on your face. Like, why can't they come from your feet or your armpits? They'd just be a lot easier. Nobody would know. I could be stoic. Um, but then they go back here and they make you sniffle. It's just bad. Um, tears are visible. And it's, it's just, why are they visible? They have to be. This is a way God designed us that, that suffering should be seen. When you suffer alone, it is one of the most painful, damaging things. It takes something that is already painful and makes it far worse. One of the biggest things about justice, about, about witnessing the injustices in this world, um, is the victim has to know that people see it. This is what sort of hashtag slacktivism is all about. I know people, people hate all over it, but, but look, it's just a statement of, I see it, okay? If this is you, if you're going through this pain, I see your pain. You're not alone. There are those of us out here, even though we don't know how to fix it, other than to retweet something, I don't know how to fix it, but I see it. That's actually really important. When Job was suffering from the loss of everything in his life, what did his friends do? They came and they sat. They were present. They were there. Sometimes being a witness to suffering is one of the most important roles you can play and to let them know, hey, I see grief on your face. I see it coming out of your... Can I sit with you? If you want to talk about it, we can. But oftentimes, just to be the presence of God there with them is one of the most important things. Um... The first Christians insisted that when Jesus was suffering on the cross, that he was not suffering as those suffering on either side of him, as verse 15 says, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, that he was deity, that he was God, and that he was man at the same time, that he was you, that he was sweaty and thirsty and bleeding and naked and embarrassed, and in pain, and screaming out. All of it. That is why 
the cross is so important. Some of you in this room are wearing a cross around your neck. For thousands of years, people have been wearing crosses around their neck. Why? Because there was a God who walked in your shoes, who knows what it's like to have a really bad day, who knows what it's like to be insulted and mocked and to feel pain. And that's why we hang crosses on our neck. That's why we hang crosses on the walls of our houses. That is why we put a cross over our beloved dead. It is a statement that there is a God who sees your suffering and has been there and he knows. The cross is very important to us as followers of Jesus. It is unique in all of religion. A God who became familiar with everything that you have been through. He knows what it's like to be lonely. There was a time when he was in his depth of his suffering where he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? All alone, at the depths of his suffering, he knows what it's like when nobody knows that you're suffering. So for the, for the girl who nobody knows that what she's going through, and so she cuts herself as a way of, of relieving her own pain, you have to know that there is a God who was alone in his own suffering. He understands what you're going through. For the first person who has suffered loss, for the person who has been exhausted, for the person who just feels like he's not making any progress with the people around him, Jesus knows exactly what you're talking about. He knows exactly what you're going through. And that he is right next to you, screaming out, and that is really important. It's not just a God who became familiar with your suffering. It's that he came with you, stretched out his arms, and screamed for injustice like you. Which is why Christians have a very important part to play in this world. When people are suffering, when things are happening that are not just, Christians should be there. Not sitting back from afar, mocking them and saying it's because of their sin. We should join them in it. And we should stand with them and we put our arms up and we scream for injustice and we scream out for things to be made right. Why? Why should we not stand there and say, well, it's because of their own sins, the things that they've done, that's the reason that... Because when you were in your own sin and you were suffering because of the repercussions of your own sin, Jesus saw you and he came and stood next to you and put his arms out and screamed beside you for justice, for reconciliation, for things to be made right. And you, being the body of Jesus, when you see it, it is your job to go, to stand with them, and to scream. Very important. Always has been, but for some reason, lately it is not so. And I don't understand what we're missing about the gospel. Look at, look at, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, we have sort of entered into um, a time in, in this sort of postmodern world, if you will, that the shift has moved. Um, I, had, I had like six different people send me this um, sort of, I think it was like a, like a 
graphic like a little cartoon last week that explains exactly what's happening. And I already thought that. I agree with this. That, that there was, it was um, socially advantageous for the last 50 years for people to identify with Christianity. To say, I'm a Christian. And to identify as a Christian. So lately this pew, this, this pew poll came out that basically said that, that Christianity has, has shrunk dramatically. Um, and I would beg to differ. What has happened is and those of us um, who have watched this shift know exactly what's going on. It has become no longer socially advantageous for you to call yourself a Christian. It is now socially advantageous for you to call yourself an atheist. And honestly, we've done this to ourselves. We have. But it's now socially advantageous to not be a Christian. And so, it looks like we're having troubles, but I would say we're actually becoming more Christian than we were before. Um, I would say those who are left standing... Um, have a, sort of a better view of exactly what is going on. And so now you are basically being told, look, there's no reason for you to trust in a God. We now have all kinds of things of, of that, that we have created. I love reading science books. I love the work that scientists are doing. I think scientists are doing the work of God. I think they are telling us and showing us how God's world works how this all sort of happened and moves. And I love that. I love studying this stuff. Um, however, I stop at the point when they say, so, so abandon that and trust in this. I cannot trust in this for my future and for my purpose in life and my meaning because this tells me um, that this all ends very badly. That a million years from now, our solar system will collide with another solar system our rock will hit another rock. And eventually there will be no one in existence to tell the tale of what happened here. There will be no one. All of the good you are doing, all of the bad you have done, all of the injustice that you're screaming about, all of the ways you're trying to clean up the world um, doesn't matter at all because in the end it will all be wiped clean and there will be no one to tell the tale of what you did here. And I do not believe that. And so Peter says, you should entrust your souls to a faithful creator. There is no one in this world that I can really put my faith in and what they say because, again, we're all going to end up in the dirt with a cross over our bodies. Myself, you, everyone here, everyone I love. And so I cannot put my faith in you. I will put my faith in the creator, in God. I will trust his word when he says that love is the rule, that grace is the law, and I will live this way. Because he's the creator. I can't trust in created things. Timothy Keller, um, pastor in, in, um, in Manhattan, he has a great quote that's always been one of my favorites. And he says this, you're on a little ball of rock called earth, and you're spinning through space at a million miles an hour, and even if it doesn't run into anything, someday a little trap door called death is going to open up underneath every one of us. And underneath that door are either the everlasting arms of God, or millions of miles of nothing. Do you think your bank account is going to help you? Your PhD? Your supermodel wife? Either you are connected with God and everything is secure, no matter how chaotic your life looks, or you are not and nothing is secure, no matter how orderly it looks. You can describe as much order as you want, um, if it's not rooted in something that's not going to perish, then, then it's useless. 
So even if my life is completely chaotic, even if I'm suffering, even if it just gets really, really hard, um, it's not rooted in anything here. Everything here will end. And I am promised resurrection. And I believe it because I have studied deeply into the first century and what exactly happened with Jesus. And it is the only explanation. That a man died and that now he is alive. And if that really happened, then everything he has to say matters far more than anything any of you could say. And so I trust that. It's all I have. And I put all of my weight upon it. Martin Luther um, said this, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost all of them, but whatever I place in God's hands, that I still possess. The message of resurrection is that nothing is really lost. Everything that means anything will be given back. Everything that is important is yours. Even Paul wrote, all, all of it is yours. Everything is yours. And so maybe you're here today and, and you are suffering because of the sin that you have done. Maybe there's just a way you've been living and it has brought just intense suffering into your life. Um, I want you to know that you need Jesus. And the reason you need Jesus is because he knows what it's like to suffer because of your sin because he did suffer because of your sin. He's with you. He's there. Even when you're suffering for sin, Jesus is there. And he wants to walk you out of it. Maybe you're here today and you've been hiding your suffering. You're just going through it alone. And you will not just let people in. I would like to think that we are a community of confession where we can be honest, where we can, we can say what we think and we can say what we fear and we can speak our minds and speak our hearts and let it out that we don't have to hold up this facade. Look, your generation has this problem with facades and social media has done this to you. You don't have to look perfect all the time. That actually keeps you from getting real and honest and letting people see who you are. And if nobody ever sees who you are, nobody will be there when you're suffering. They won't know. So let's be honest. And let's admit the things that we're going through together. And you'll say yours, I'll say mine, and we'll just be like, yep, we're a wreck. We need Jesus. And we do. Maybe you're here today and, and you have been a witness to other people's suffering you know what's going on. I would argue that your role for being a witness to suffering in the world is that you have the role of Jesus to play. In the way that he came and entered into your world and stood with you and screamed with you, you go to them, you sit with them, and you scream with them. It is the first step towards healing. Entering into the story. It's the first thing God did to heal us. Enter into the story. Go there. Stand with them. People will throw rocks at you. People will hit you. It's the same thing they did to Stephen. It's the same thing they did to Jesus. Um, but Peter says, but hey, the same God that was there at all those difficult places will be there with you. And they will see the face of God on you. Again, this is what we saw two weeks ago when that shooter walked into that church and killed nine people. And then he stood in front of a judge with two guards behind him. And the families of the slain victims speak to him and say, hey, what you did was terrible. God forgives you, though, and I forgive you. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. The face of God shining on those who are suffering for good. And hopefully, when this comes our way, we will stand and let the face of God shine through us. And so we're going to take communion.
Um, our communion service, you guys can go ahead and, uh, and prepare. And uh, I don't know what all of this means for all of you. I don't know what all of you are going through. I hope somebody does. Um, if you need prayer, find someone in this room. Pray with them. If you need to confess some sins, to some, find a, a fellow Christian. And we are all priests of God. We can hear confession and we can hear it and, and we can say, hey, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus. Not because of anything I have done, because of what he has done. We are all the, the, a royal priesthood of saints. This is a, one of our jobs is to forgive sins. And when you do, you are practicing the grace that God wants you to practice. If you need prayer right through these doors on the left, there's, another prayer, there, there's a room there with somebody that will be there to pray for you. Um, I hope, I think there'll be a house church leader or an elder there to pray with you. Um, but we take communion every single time we come together. And uh, the body of Christ broken for all of us, the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. We take a piece, we, we dip it in, in, in the wine, and we eat it, and we take it down, and we say, God, I remember your son Jesus. I remember what he did for me. I remember the suffering he went through to reconcile me to you. And I ask that the gospel would go down inside of me and touch the places that, that need to be touched, that need to be changed. And so let's spend some time in prayer and um, let's take communion together. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you do. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Help us to learn to be honest. Help us to learn to not be so guarded that we can't even let people know we are suffering because maybe they are suffering too. Maybe they need to see it. Maybe they need to hear it. Um, Help us to be brave and to stand with those who are suffering. We love you, Father. Change us. Make us in your image. In your name. Amen. So take some time and uh, talk to Jesus.